Well, how are you, Bill? How you doing? I'm fine, Joe. Good, good. So we're just hanging out at your house right now. And, yep. Uh, I think we're uh, going to teach me all about the history of the data world. Okay. <laughs> so. I'll, I'll contribute whatever I know. Okay, perfect. So <clears throat> before um, we are, uh, hit record, you're telling me about uh, one of the, one of the uh, people, Ed something? Ed Jordan. Okay, who is Ed Jordan? Ed Jordan, okay, I, I have to go back before Ed Jordan. Okay. Once, once upon a time in our world, uh, computer programming was you take a coding pad, which you can't even find anymore, and you start writing code. And, 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 and what passed for a program back in that day was, was really something miserable. And Ed Jordan came along and started something called Structured Programming and Design. And Ed Jordan said, uh, gee, there ought to be a discipline to this uh, uh, in order for us to be able to maintain the code and, and to produce it in, in a rational fashion. And so Ed Jordan started something called uh, Structured Programming uh, uh, and Design. Uh, Ed passed away about, oh, five years ago in Santa Fe, New Mexico. But uh, throughout my life, uh, Ed was a, uh, a friend. Uh, I've, I've met him and worked with him on numerous occasions, and, and he was a really nice person. But uh, he had a, a, a very significant impact on, on, on the way code is written today. Um, About what time, or maybe what year did he come up with this? Ed started his work around 1965, I wow. believe. So he was one of the early, early pioneers. When did you get into the industry, by the way? I wrote, wrote my first program uh, as a college student in 1965. Wow. So I've been programming, and, and I, I, uh, I do something that you can't even find today. I actually programmed in a similar language, machine language. And then, then came along Fortran, and then came along COBOL, and then came along PL1 and, and a bunch of other languages. And, but uh, 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 at the root of all of this, uh, uh, I remember all that register to register stuff you had to do with uh, 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 assembler programming that, that you, you don't even see it today. It's there, it's underneath the covers, but you don't see it. But okay. I, I wrote my first program in assembler language and uh, um, uh, in 1965 as a, uh, as a programmer. Dang. And then uh, it's about the time that Ed came up with um, uh, his contributions. And so how did they end up impacting you? Who's Ed, that? Ed Jordan? Uh, Ed. Well, um, uh, I met Ed through being a, a, a publisher. Ed, Ed wrote books, uh, and, and I wrote books, and one day... Uh, Ed called me up and asked me to speak at a conference, and uh, I knew who he was, but I was just starting out, and I was very honored. So I went to his conference, uh, uh, and then then that's where a friendship developed. I uh, 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 I spoke at his conference. So he was originally from New York City, uh, and then he moved to Santa Fe. Okay, you like Santa Fe, by the way. Oh, I love Santa Fe. Yeah, yeah. I think you say you go there often. Uh... But uh, that, was, that was Ed Jordan. But he's, uh, once upon a time, data management and data architecture was as simple as taking a COBOL 
work what we called working storage section and writing it down. It, it was it was extremely simple in those days, and and today data architecture is very complex uh, for lots of reasons because of the enormity of the projects that we. Uh, are building and have built uh, because of the different types of data. Uh, once upon a time, we had only structured data. Today, we've got textual data, uh, we've got analog data, uh, we still have structured data, uh, but, uh, but today the uh, different types of data are entering the picture and each one of them requires its own set of things that need to be done. So. Uh, the world of data architecture is uh, is a complex world today. So going back to the again to the, the early early days, maybe the 60s and the the 70s. What what was that world of data like back then? Um, one thought that I have back from that those days was the end user was never satisfied. That <laughs> you you would go to the end user and you would say to the end user. Uh, give me your requirements, and the end user would give you the requirements. You would go off in a corner and, and build a program and a database to, uh, uh, to do whatever they, they wanted. And by the time that you gave them what they asked for, they had changed their mind about what they'd asked for. And that happened, that happened eternally. It, it happened everywhere uh, that I went. Uh, in the early days, we, we in the very early days, uh, we had these things called punch boards. Uh, we don't, I don't think they even have them anymore. Uh, but punch boards were a, a piece of electronic equipment where you took wires and made connections. That, that's how data wow. first came about. And then after the punch boards, we had something called paper tape. Paper tape was uh, something that uh, spun around on a circular queue, uh, uh, and the thing about paper tape is, uh, well, the first thing is, number one, you had extremely limited memory, number one, and number two, after about six times of rolling around this uh, contraption that it did, the, the cotton-picking thing broke. And, and so uh, <laughs> I, I think the only place you can find a paper tape today is, is in the Smithsonian Institute. I think, I think I've heard they still have some there, but no commercial organization has them. After there were paper tape, uh, then there were punch cards. Now, the history of the punch cards is, is kind of interesting. Uh, I, I did some research on it, and the, the punch cards started in Persia with people that were making rugs. Really? That, yeah. And, 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 and if you've ever sat and looked at a Persian rug, you wonder how did the person weaving this rug get all of these intricate designs in? Because if you go look at a Navajo rug, Navajos do completely different weaving than Persians did. Navajo weaving is, quite frankly, very simplistic. By the way, I like Navajo rugs. Don't get me wrong. In fact, my wife collects them. But, uh, but in terms of the ornateness of, of how they are built, um, the, the, the Persian rugs are much more ornate than a Navajo rug. 
But, and so you ask yourself, how did the person weaving the rug know when they're putting the, 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 the uh, uh, lines into the rug, how did they know at this point to start this particular design? And the way they did that is through, uh, they, they started a punched card system that allowed them to control that. Now that was back in the 1400s and 1500s. That was a long wow. time ago. And then after that, the next appearance we saw of that technology uh, was in player pianos. If you ever looked at the uh, player piano and the um, uh, rolls that go into the paper piano, all that is is a, a punched card that's put on a roll of paper. But, mm. but the, the people that did the player piano took it from the, the rug weavers in Persia. And then, and then when IBM and Hollerith were looking for a, a way to do what they do, uh, then they came along <clears throat> and asked for uh, 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 that methodology. That's when they came up with the, uh, the punched card. I don't know if you know it or not, but the first application of punch cards was in the census that, that IBM was faced with the task of <clears throat> taking census information and making sense of it. And that's where the punch card came from. And then, of course, after we had punch cards, we had magnetic tape files. And in a lot of ways, magnetic tape files were a uh, serious um, uh, improvement over punch cards. I, one, one of the things that has happened to me and, and other people that did this is you drop a deck of punch cards. And when you <laughs> drop a deck of punch cards, you've got to sit there and manually sequence through the cards to get them back in order and pray that you get them in, 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 in the right sequence in the right order. Uh, so there was a lot that was wrong with punch cards. So when magnetic tape came, oh, the, the other major difficulty with punch cards uh, was the fact that you were limited to 80 columns. Whatever data you want to put into uh, your card has got to be no more than 80 columns long. By the way, the punch card still exists on a widely used basis today. Most people don't know it. Uh, but if you've ever looked at an airline ticket, an airline ticket uh, 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 is nothing more than a glorified punched card. So we really? still, yeah, oh. uh, 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 th 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 that's where that came from. So then after the punch cards came magnetic tape files and magnetic tape files, uh, you could have uh, variable length records. You weren't restricted to 80 bytes. Uh, <clears throat> you could uh, store a lot of data on a magnetic tape file, and that was an interesting thing uh, to be able to do. But magnetic tape files had their own set of problems. The first problem and major problem with a magnetic tape file is that in order to find one record, you had to spin through the entire file. So you say, I want to find Joe Reese's record. That's fine. We've got to look through 80,000 records to mm. get to Joe. And, 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 and that was a serious impediment. Uh, another impediment of them was that the oxide they used on punched cards was, quite frankly, very flimsy. And, and if you tried to store 
one of these tapes for more than about 12 months time, uh, you can expect that <clears throat> the oxide would come off on the tape. And, and when, by the way, once the oxide on a tape comes off, you're, you're finished. That, that's the end. You, nothing you can do about it. No recovery, no nothing. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, as, as advanced as punched, as, as uh, 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 magnetic tapes were, they still were an advance over uh, 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 cards. And then after the, we, we ended up having uh, magnetic tapes, we then started to get into disk storage. Uh, and, and in the beginning, disk storage was very difficult to make and very expensive. Now, today, we can go down to one of our local stores and buy a terabyte of data on a flash disk and think nothing of it. But uh, in the early days, um, uh, in the early days, that was not so at all. And so we are, and, and not that, that uh, disk storage is perfect, but disk storage allowed you to have variable length records, allowed you to access data directly, and in today's world, you can store a virtually uh, a infinite amount of data on, on punch cards. So that's a, a little bit about the progression of the, mag, the, the media for storage of, of text. What did databases arrive on the scene? And I guess another question I have is, uh, what problems were databases meant to address that magnetic storage couldn't? Okay, uh, databases, huh. once you had your magnetic storage, then you had the problem of finding and managing data. And in the very early days, before there were database management systems, the programmer had to figure out where to store the data, uh, figure out if he was writing over other data, uh, figure out if there was a, an index to access the data, and so forth and so on. And then very shortly after uh, uh, disk storage started to become popular, they introduced the database management system. And the database management system underneath the covers does all kinds of things for you. Uh, it locates your data. Uh, it, it makes sure that you can actually store your data there. Uh, uh, it it um, allows you to do update uh, of the data and so forth and so on. So that uh, so that that, that that that's a little bit about that. Yeah. Now with database management systems, there arose a whole new set of problems. Mm. Now you had to have a piece of technology that interfaced with the database management system. And some of these technologies, quite frankly, were atrocious. I mean, they, they were designed, I don't know who they were, they weren't designed at all. They, they were just thrown out there. Uh, but in today's world, uh, we have very relatively, very advanced software to do our database management system management for us. I'm sure compared to back then. But as I was doing a lot of research on the, the history of databases, it seems like there was a period of time when a hierarchical network and relational databases, it was kind of a toss up of which one would actually uh, be successful. Uh, were, were you around for that? Yeah, yeah. 
and, and you're right. Uh, uh, Cullinet uh, had a, uh, a, one of the database management systems uh, that was a, a network uh, database, and, and it was a good one. Uh, but uh, in terms of marketing, uh, Cullinane just flat got out marketed by IBM, mm. and 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 that that that's what happened there. Interesting. So then IBM comes on the scene, and then they seem to have been this juggernaut uh, through the '70s, well, and '80s, right? That was kind of interesting, because IBM. First off, had a large portion of the marketplace, and then and then let me let me get into another pioneer that I actually worked for, a mm. guy named Gene Amdahl. Uh, Gene Amdahl used to work for IBM, uh, and Gene Amdahl did something that I don't think people have any appreciation for what Gene Amdahl did. Uh, but Gene Amdahl came up with the idea that there could be a transferability of software across computers. Now, that's something oh, wow. we take for granted today. But once upon a time, every computer had to have its own customized operating system. Really? Uh-huh. And, and, and Gene Amdahl said, wait a minute, uh, we can build computers. He was an electrical engineer. Uh, we can build computers so that you can actually transfer software from one computer to the next. If it weren't for Gene Amdahl, the world of programming today would be vastly different than what it is. And you said you, you worked for him? Yeah, I, wor I, I worked for him and I knew him. What was I the company? Dedicated a book for him. Pardon? Was it Am Amdahl Systems? Amdahl Corporation. Amdahl Corporation? What did they do? Uh, uh, Amdahl... A corporation made uh, clones of IBM's com c computers. Okay. The IBM mainframe. I, uh, Amdahl made mainframes, <clears throat> and and uh, made mainframes. Interesting. And, and then they got bought years ago by Fujitsu, and I don't I don't think Amdahl even exists anymore. But, I haven't heard of him. <laughs> so. But but what happened was it's kind of interesting. I, I saw a dig. Uh, um, a chart one time, the, the, the cost of an IBM mainframe was typically around two to three million dollars. Back in though Back in the old days. Okay. And then Amdahl came along and started selling a clone of it, and, 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 and you could see the price of the IBM mainframe just, just take a nosedive. Really? Yeah. And by the way, I, I, I saw something once. Um, about um, <clears throat> what do you think the manufacturing cost IBM had in terms of the... Now, this doesn't include the research and development, but once they had the chips made and, and that made, what do you think the uh, actual manufacturing cost of an IBM computer was that's selling for 2 to $3 million? A half million? $165. Wait, what? $165. That they were selling for $2 million. They're selling for 2 And so the margin that IBM had, that's how IBM got so rich. That's almost infinity margin. That's almost <laughs> infinity. And, 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 uh, and then Amdahl came along and started selling clones for half the price of IBM. Whoa. And that forced IBM to drop the price of the mainframe. Wow. That's the craziest thing I've heard all day. And then... And then 
Microsoft came along and, and made computing available to the common man. Yeah. And because uh, at one point in time, computing was exclusively IBM and it was exclusively corporate computing. That's really interesting. And so in the database market then, it seems like IBM had a lock on things for quite a while. Well, let or me tell they? you, I, I, IBM did something really clever. Well, really clever, really smart. And, and they came out with <clears throat> disk storage, uh, which meant you could access data directly. They came out with database management systems, which meant that you didn't have to have genius programmers to do all the data management stuff. Uh, uh, and then they came out with a, a teleprocessing monitor. And what that meant was that you could do online transaction processing, OLTP. Oh, okay. And once you could do OLTP, what happened was uh, the, the marketplace just exploded because prior to IBM's OLTP, banks couldn't do bank teleprocessing, airlines couldn't do reservation processing, there were no ATM machines, and, and the, the IBM um, uh, going to uh, online transaction processing opened up the, the world of business to where it had never been opened up before. Really? That suddenly, the computer began to be an integral part of the business. Think about a bank. You yeah. cannot run a bank today without online transaction processing. So, I'm sorry, you can't do it. And, 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 uh, uh, and I give credit. And then IBM did something I've never understood. <clears throat> they started to look at short-term profits. And, and one day, uh, at one point in time, IBM had uh, account managers in every large account they had. And then one day, somebody came along and said, gee, IBM, these account managers are costing you a lot of money. Why don't you get rid of your account managers? And they did. And, and what happened was, in the short term, yes, the IBM bottom line looked pretty good. But what they did was they lost account control because, because uh, there, there was a, a period in time where IBM account manager literally ran the IT department for lots of large corporations. And, and once IBM lost control of the, um, <clears throat> the marketplace, <clears throat> then you started to see Oracle and Microsoft and SAP and, uh, uh, and all of the other players rush in and take over the role that IBM in. And so I, I, IBM had good profits for a year or two, but in terms of market share and long-term sales, uh, I, I, IBM sold themselves down the river. Wow. I didn't know that. So that's a pretty big screw-up in retrospect. Oh, <laughs> short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. About what year was that? Oh, I was at Standard Oil of California when that happened. And uh, I mean, that would have been about 1980, 81, somewhere in that time frame. Okay. And, and, um, <clears throat> um, and IBM made the decision, we don't want account control anymore because it's too expensive. 
And boy, did it cost them because here comes Oracle, here comes Microsoft, here comes SAP, here comes a host of other people uh, that the account uh, was open to, that it once upon a time was never open to. Speaking of Oracle, didn't, didn't you share an office with Larry Ellison at one point? Yes, indeed. I worked at a company <laughs> called Ampex in, in uh, Redwood Shores, California. And I worked, I was there about nine months' time. And, and uh, it's really funny. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, uh, it was years after I left Ampex that I even re realized I was working with Larry Ellison. Because Larry Ellison would come in in the morning. He wasn't unfriendly. He would say, hi, how are you doing? He'd go over to his corner. He had, a, he had a, a, a desk in the corner, go over and start programming. And in the afternoon, he'd say goodbye. And, and I, I didn't think anything about Larry Ellison. He was just another guy that we worked with. And what we figured out was he was over in the corner writing the first version of Oracle is what he was doing. <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I was reading this article about four years later about this new company called Oracle, and then it mentioned Larry Ellison, no and, and then it mentioned that Larry Ellison had been at Ampex. And I thought, oh my God, I used to work, I used to work right around the corner from that guy. So yeah, I'm, I've met That's Larry crazy. Ellison. That's a crazy story. That's a true story. That's so. What are I mean? You've been around the block. What are some of the craziest stories that you have of of the? Uh, uh, data industry, or I guess the technology industry from back in the day. Uh, sure, you can go well, on. Well, <laughs> let me let me let, let me talk about the dumbest thing people have said to me. Uh, once upon a time, I had a friend of mine that worked at Storage Tech. Uh, storage Tech at the time was a large vendor of storage products in Colorado, Louisville, Colorado. And my friend Sue Osterfeld uh, was building data warehouses at Storage Tech. And, and, and uh, uh, so what ha started happening is people started coming to Storage Tech to look at the data warehouse. Now, vendors like it when people come to their organization, but they thought, wait a minute, we're selling storage products and they want to come see this thing called data warehouse. So my friend Sue called me in to talk to the head of strategic planning for, uh, for Storage Tech. And so I'll never forget this. Sue and I were in there, and he said, what's this thing called data warehouse? And I said, well, it's a way for people to integrate data, to have uh, historical records of data, and to do analytic processing. And, and he said, well, he says, we, we subscribe to Gartner. We haven't heard of it. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, and so I, I went on and went in an in-depth description of what a data warehouse was and the marketplace. And he said, well... Thank you for coming in and talking, but I don't see any uh, relationship between the demand for storage products and data warehouse. But thank you for coming in. Interesting. I, I thought, I mean, that, 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 that's the single dumbest thing anybody's ever said to me. And, and <laughs> now, six months later, Storage Tech was sold uh, to Oracle, uh, uh, and, and it disappeared uh, uh, inside the bowels of Oracle. But... Um, when you have a strategic manager, I don't, you know, he took everything from Gartner. And I have nothing against Gartner. In fact, I kind of like Gartner. But, but in the early days, Gartner was not a supporter uh, of Data Warehouse. And, uh, oh, interesting. Uh, 
Oh. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, uh, the, 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 that, 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 that was the single dumbest thing anybody's ever said. Head of strategic planning for a storage corporation. And uh, um, uh, we had another experience with storage tech. Uh, that wasn't the only one. Um, uh, I was up in um, uh, General Motors. And I had a guy in General Motors that I'd worked with, and I was telling him about some technology that's, that Storage Tech had. And, and gosh, I can't remember the name of the technology it was, but it was technology for storing lots and lots of data. And so I mentioned this to this, uh, this guy who happened to be the person that selected new technology for General Motors. And I told him about this technology that Storage Tech had. And so, so the next week, my friend called up Storage Tech. And he said, I heard about this such a thing. And Storage Tech came in and made them a presentation on their high-performance disk storage. And my friend says, well, thank you, but we're really interested in, gosh, I cannot remember the name of that, that technology. And, 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 and the guys from Storage Tech said, you know, well, we, we don't want to sell that to you. And my friend from General Motors said, look, we've got lots of uses for it. He says, I will pay you full list price uh, if you'll just give me one so I can, can play with it and see how it works. Storage tech wouldn't sell them. Full list price. And, and, uh, and, I, and this was before big data. This was the earliest uh, predecessor of what came to be known as big data. And, and uh um, I could one more storage tech story, and I don't have anything <laughs> against storage tech, but they're they're no longer in existence. Uh, but uh, 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 I, I was talking to storage tech to my friend Sue and some other people about data warehouse and 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 the fact that a lot of people were coming to storage tech to look at data warehouse, and and this one manager came in and says, "What are you guys talking about data warehouse for?" I said, "Well, because." People are starting to do it and use it. And, and I said, and storage tech ought to be playing in that marketplace. This guy, this is a sales manager. He said, so help me God, he said, uh, he says, gee, all we need around here is a bunch of new customers spending a bunch of new money. He says, that would drive us crazy. Go away. Wait, what? That's like literally why you have a business. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I don't uh, know. What do we know? <laughs> yeah, what do we know? So... So anyway, anyway, interesting company. Um, they, they went out of business. Sounds like it. Sounds like they were <laughs> doing everything they could to do that. Uh, so with the data warehouse, I mean, you've, you've obviously spoken a lot about it. You came up with it. Um, what are some of the, the, I guess, the stories that people haven't really heard uh, about the data warehouse? I think maybe you told me some of them, but uh, maybe your well, experiences with them and so forth. Uh, um. What are story people haven't heard? Um, hmm. Or maybe not as many people. I, I know. <laughs> I know some secrets that I can't tell you. Okay. <laughs> I, especially on, on a public. Don't worry uh, about thing. it. But uh, uh, there are some interesting data warehouses that the government has. That um, I'll put it like this: When Edward Snowden uh, got got arrested and put in jail for what he described, I could have pre uh, presented the same presentation that Edward Snowden did. I knew, I knew down to the 
the nth degree everything that Edward Snowden knew. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so, that's <laughs> whole. Uh, but we're not going to yeah, talk no, about we'll that talk. database. The, um, but the. Uh, but when, we're, when we're having lunch just a bit ago, I mean, you're telling me that when the uh, data warehouse first came out, for example, people were uh, well had a bit of a reaction. I don't, I don't, I don't exactly understand this, but 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 the reaction to data warehousing, for whatever reason, IBM hated data warehouse, and and to some extent they still hate it today, and to some extent data science. Uh, was a reaction against data warehouse. Big data mm. was a reaction against it. And IBM's tried, been trying to kill data warehouse from day one. Now, why are they doing it? I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't work for them, never have worked for them. I can't tell you. But uh, I think, and I think this is a silly idea. I think that they think because they didn't invent the idea that it either can't be a good idea or mm. a valid idea, and they're wrong on both accounts. Uh, 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 and and but uh, but uh, but IBM hated data warehouse. Uh, I had a lady. I'll tell you. I'm not going to mention the name of the company or the lady because I don't want to embarrass them. But there was a lady at a database management company uh, that called me in. And I'd known her for a long time. And she said to me, says, Bill, uh, don't ever mention Data Warehouse uh, uh, with, in, in conjunction with our company because our company wants nothing to do with Data Warehouse. Interesting. And, and, and uh, uh, the company, well, I'll tell you the company's name, not the lady's name. The company's name was Sybase. And Sybase oh. doesn't even exist anymore. But one of the top managers at Sybase said, uh, we are a transaction processing company. We don't want anything to do with data warehouse. Even Oracle, uh, 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 even Oracle um, uh, uh, was anti-data warehouse. Uh, Microsoft, Microsoft, I, I don't think to this day Microsoft understands data warehouse. And, and now, the good news is there are companies that do, uh, but... Uh, uh, Microsoft was never uh, a supporter of data warehouse. That's really interesting because, I mean, you, you flash forward to today and it's like data warehousing is everywhere. Yeah. You know, and, it's, and I think it, it, the, the term has become so overloaded, I think it probably gives you some consternation at some point, depending yes, on how people does. use it. But, but back in the day, you know, in, in past conversations we had, it, made, it definitely made it sound like it wasn't, uh, an overnight success. Like it took oh. quite a bit to get to where you are today. When we first started Data Warehouse, uh, there was a guy, Arnie Barnett. Arnie's no longer alive. God love him. He's a great guy. But uh, we were doing conferences on Data Warehouse. And our first, oh, four or five years, everybody that came to that conference was from marketing or sales. Nobody from high tech. And then one day, I'll never forget this day. I, 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 when I started my uh, classes and presentations, I used to ask, okay, who's here from IT? And in the, in the early days, nobody was there from IT. Uh, uh, and then one day, suddenly, people started raising their hands. So, oh, interesting. Uh, but, but the way Data Warehouse started, it started off in marketing. If it hadn't been for marketing, we never would have had Data Warehouses. But... 
The first data warehouse was done in Pactel Cellular, is now part of Macaw Communications today. And Pactel Cellular at that time was in a sprint to get as many customers in the early days of cell phone that they could. And so for whatever reason, I don't know why they did it, and I, God love them, I love them for doing it, but I don't know why they did it. They chose to build a data warehouse. And suddenly, Pactel Cellular started soaking up uh, market share because they found with data warehousing uh, that they could um, uh, 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 keep customers, attract new customers, keep customers, and find out what customers like. And so what happened was these other cellular companies came along and their top management uh, said, oh my gosh, uh, Pactel Cellular's got this secret weapon uh, called Data Warehouse. You guys in IT go build us one. And it's kind of funny because the very people that were uh, had been treating us with great deal of neglect suddenly were at our doorstep <laughs> saying, how do you build one of these things called a data a warehouse? And then Sam Walton's book uh, from Walmart came out. Uh, and, and believe me, it, it was only... It was only three or four pages in the book, but that's all it took for Sam Walton to talk about a data warehouse. What was that book, Made in America? Or I, I, yeah. I read that book when I, when I was a teenager, and I remember coming across, the, uh, they talked about the um, Walmart sophisticated uh, um, data and uh, infrastructure yep. even back then. Yep, yep, so. and that was it. Yeah, And so once Walmart started talking about it and once cellular for telephone companies, then other people said, gee, maybe we ought to invest in this. And, mm. and uh, I used to get letters when, uh, when we first started, and I've got them somewhere in my office here, uh, uh, letters. I, uh, some of the letters said, uh, I am Bill Inman is an anarchist and shouldn't be allowed to speak in public. <laughs> Bill Inman is setting the industry back 25 years. Uh, 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 and, and I mean, I, I got hate mail. I didn't get any death threats. Did you frame but, any of these? Pardon? Did you frame any of these letters? No, I, I, I do have them in a, in, a, in a file. Every now and then when I have nothing better to do, I file back through them. But, oh, that's uh, funny. Um, uh, uh, data Warehouse. And, and back in those days, IBM was the, the king on the block. I mean, I, mean, I mean, people today, you've got a lot of companies out there, and you can choose from them. Once upon a time, it was IBM or the highway. And, and, uh, and, and IBM... Uh, hated data warehouse. Interesting. So it started with marketing, got traction, eventually IT and uh, big companies start using it. Yep. About what time period was that that it started getting traction? Oh. Like, actually, let me back up here. When did you first come up with it? Uh, and then when did it start getting popular? Okay. I was a writer for a journal called Computer World. I don't even know if Computer World's in existence today, but uh, I, I, I had a column I did for Computer World. And I, I came up with what at the time was a radical notion. Today we laugh at this, but at the time it was a radical notion. I said that data ought to be able to be used for more than transaction processing. Because once upon a time, it was thought that data was only good for transaction processing. And I said, wait a minute, we can use this data for analytical processing, something, something different. And, 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 and 
that was like uh, uh, setting off uh, a fire. Uh, people thought that was the most radical idea. Today, we understand that, I mean, I mean that's not radical today, but it was at the time. So I was a writer in for Computer World, and I was writing about the fact that data had uh, uh, more uses than just transaction processing. And from that uh, sprang the idea of, well, what would it look like? I, 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 I'll tell you one of the early inspirations that I had, I, and people don't even remember this, but once upon a time, there was something called an information center. And, and, and an information center was where people would gather together and a group of these analysts would take the data from the transaction processing system and then do what they had to do to it and then feed it to the end user. That's mm. what one of these information centers was. And so uh, that we don't, I haven't seen information center in 25, maybe 30 years. It wasn't terribly popular, but it was the same idea. It was the same idea that you can take transaction structured data, uh, vet it, and put it into, transform it into a form that's acceptable and usable for analytical processing. So you fast forward to today, and there's no shortage of data warehouse tools or data warehouses available for people. But it still seems like data warehousing is really difficult for companies to pull off. I, I, I and, still see this all the time. Why do you think that is? Well, and what happened was, once Data Warehouse became accepted, then you had vendors coming out of the woodwork with their version of Data Warehouse. And in many cases, what they were calling the Data Warehouse was no more a Data Warehouse than cows can fly. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and I'll never forget Sybase. Sybase made a presentation one time, says, well, you, what a data warehouse is, is data that's been copied over from transaction processing systems. And, and what Sybase missed was that uh, you have to do transformation. And, and, and uh, 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 another one was Teradata. Uh, Teradata came along and said, all there is to this is managing large volumes of data. And it's true. Data warehouses do involve large volumes of data, but Teradata uh, 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 missed the transformation piece. Uh, uh, speaking of Teradata, I, I have a, a funny story for you. The second dumbest thing anybody ever said to me, uh, when ETL first came, came into being, I went to the management of Teradata in San Diego, California, and I said, you know, you guys are building a data warehouse. How would you like a tool to automate the way when people can build them faster, cheaper, and better? And, and the, uh, uh, the, the, the guy that I talked with, I won't mention his name, the guy that I talked with at Teradata said, uh, gee, we don't see that this has any impact on our business. Uh, e ETL, and I, I thought, you know, what a, what a, what a visionless per person this was. Uh, but uh, uh, th that was almost as bad as the guy from Storage Tech, because had Teradata taken the opportunity to um, uh, take ETL in, and at one point in time, 
Teradata could have owned ETL. Uh, that's what we were offering because we were doing it and we would have sold what we were doing and become part of Teradata. Interesting. Uh, they, 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 they didn't want any part of it. And I thought, you know, these guys are nuts because they think all there is to a data warehouse is to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, manage a lot of data in parallel. <clears throat> now, the consulting companies, I can't tell you how embarrassed I've been by the consulting companies, that consulting companies go learn a few buzzwords and then go sell the buzzwords. And they must be pretty good salesmen because they sold a lot of people. And, and a lot of people have what they think is a data warehouse, but it's no more a data warehouse than, than cows can fly. Speaking of ETL, did you come up with ETL? No. Okay. I, 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 I came up with the process of ETL, but the term ETL was not something I came up with. Okay, got it. Yeah, because I remember we're... Um, what we were talking about, you're, I think you're, um, you're, some company that's doing a lot of data warehousing, I think, and then um, you're like, oh, I'm going to, you know, you should, you should take this uh, a lot more seriously as a line of business, but then they're like, yeah. ah, this is, this well, is, sorry, this the, is about Bill's dog, so in the background there. In the very early, Lena, enough. <laughs> in the very earliest days, we did all of the ETL work manually by hand. And, and that's, that's where ETL came from. That's where the first company that did it was called Prism Solutions. And, and uh, uh, we said- That was said, your company. Yeah, that was yep. my company. I founded that company. And, and, and we, in Prism Solutions, we did, uh, we automated the process of, of doing ETL. And, and that, that process was like releasing um, uh, uh, air from a from a balloon. I mean, that balloon went all over. It went crazy. Interesting. Uh, because uh, prior to that, as long as you had to have programmers sitting there churning out custom code uh, to do data warehouse, you wouldn't have the data warehouses you see today. That's really interesting. Wasn't it one of the first public? Uh, data companies as well, uh, I guess data tooling companies? Uh, Prism Solutions? Yeah. yeah, it was the first uh, ETL company that, that was out there. Wow. And then came Informatica, and then today there are a bunch of them that are out there. Jeez. How long did you do Prism for? Well, let's see. I started Prism in 1990, and I left Prism in about 1998. And Prism went public in 1995, and uh, uh, so I was there about eight years. Okay. What did you do after that? Pardon? What did you do after that? Uh, after that, I came to Denver and started my own consulting firm. And I, by the way, I'm a lousy consultant, and, and <laughs> nobody in their right mind should hire me as a consultant. <laughs> And, and this is a public service of, announcement, by the way. So pardon? I said this is a public service announcement for the audience. Don't, okay, hire, don't yeah. hire Bill for consulting. So, uh, uh, yeah, don't hire Bill for consulting. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I did consulting for a while and then found out that I wasn't any good at it. And then, um, uh, um, uh, then I started doing conferences, and, and uh, I enjoyed that. I had a partner, a guy named Arnie Barnett. 
who was a wonderful person and a wonderful partner. And, and then Arnie died. Uh, 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 and then we, so I, I've, I've been working on my own ever since. That's really cool. Actually, before I get into that part, there's a question that's sort of related here. Jamak Dagani mm-hmm. uh, had a question. Uh, she, um, she asked, yeah, why are data, um, let me see here, basically, why is it that the data and the programming world sort of diverged, do you think? Um, she, let me read really this question here. Um, why did data and compute take uh, completely different philosophies? Because uh, I think where she's coming from is it, is it feels like to her the, um, the data world and the uh, software um, world, they seem very uh, different from each other. That's what she's trying to Yeah, convey. and she's absolutely right about that. Uh, uh, and, and there is a very marked difference. When you're writing a program, you are writing something that's very finite. Uh, that's what the program demands, that you have, you have a handful of data that you do whatever you're going to do with it, and, 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 and the rules or whatever are, are in, in the code. So you've got to have a very finite view of, of data when you're in, in a computer program. But when you're looking at data across the enterprise, when you're looking at um, um, uh, integrating the data across the enterprise, you can't have this limited closed perspective. You've got to have an enterprise-wide perspective. And, and, and those two perspectives are, are, are indeed very different. Yeah, this sort of jives with a lot of what I've been talking about in my talks recently, which is I feel like data is very much, it's a thinking person's sport, and it's really hard to cram sometimes software engineering practices, like sprints, for example, mm-hmm. working every two weeks on a new feature or whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to lend itself very well to a lot of the data work, which, as you point out, is, requires a lot more holistic uh, view of the enterprise and then thinking about how data uh, relates to various processes and can let, let me utility. Let me illustrate that with the yeah. story. <clears throat> One of the consulting gigs that I had uh, was with a company called Aetna Life and Casualty back in Windsor, Connecticut. And, and when I went there, uh, uh, at that time they had, and I'm not exaggerating, they had 10,000 programmers working for them. Oh. I'll never forget the room they had these people in. You, it's the only room in my life I've ever been. You couldn't see from one end of the room. You couldn't see the wall at the other really? end. And, I mean, it, and, and people... All of these people bent over in desks doing things, and every now and then one of them would get up and go have a conference with somebody else, and and 10,000 people. And so the head of this was a guy named Joe Guglietta, and I'll never forget my conversation with Joe Guglietta. He said, Bill, he says, I've got a huge budget. I've got 10,000 people working for me. And, and I can't answer the simplest questions. He says, the other day, one of the people on the board of directors asked me, gee, we're at a life and casualty. How many policies do we have in our company? And who are our customers? And he said, I can't tell you. He says, wait a minute. You've got 10,000 people working for you. Uh, um, and he said, yeah, but you see, 
these people are working on individual policy systems. There's one kind of policy mm. system here, another kind of policy system here, another kind of policy system off over here, and 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 we have no way to coordinate the data because a policy in one place is not a policy in another place. And so answering the qu simple questions, how many policies do we have? How many customers do we have? How many sales did we make? And what kind of revenue did we bring in? So on an enterprise-wide basis, we can't answer those questions. That's terrible. Well, <laughs> did, but, did you but, help them with that? Yeah, we said we're going to build your data. And in, 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 in fact, let me continue the story. Yeah. At that time, I was working for American Management Systems, and I was working as a consultant with Pactel Cellular, with um, uh, 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 the oil company up in Canada, um, Shell Canada, and, and, uh, and Aetna Life and Casualty. Now, the insurance business and the oil business and the cellular business are very different businesses. Their business models don't resemble each other. And what was really interesting to me, the time that I realized that Data Warehouse might have real life, was the fact that, that I had just been to Aetna Life and Casualty, and I went to uh, Canada to work for Shell Canada, and, and the very same architectural diagram came up and it came oh. up with and 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 I thought this is really interesting because architecturally when it comes to looking at enterprise-wide data Shell Canada is facing the same problem that Aetna Life and Casualty is facing which was the same problem that uh, Pactel Cellular was facing. That's really interesting. That's so when you there's probably likes to this thing? Pardon? That's when he knew there was probably legs to this thing then. Yeah, and, and the words data warehousing were first spoken in Shell Canada at a meeting. I'll never forget that meeting. Uh, uh, there was a lady named Donna Corrigan, uh, a, a guy named uh, Gary War Warholm, and a guy named Herman Popko, and myself in the meeting. And so, I don't know who it was that said it, but said, yeah, this thing that we're talking about building here, we ought to call it a data warehouse. Oh, wow. And, and, and that, that's where those words were first spoken. Do you know what year that was? <sighs> no. No? Okay. <laughs> it, it long was, ago. <laughs> it was long ago. <laughs> that's interesting. I always wonder where the, where the term came up from. Uh, well, we were thinking about what to, what to call it. Uh -huh. And we called it a data. Now, IBM had something that they called an information warehouse, but IBM's information warehouse, first off, was never defined. Uh, they never, ever gave a definition of it. And, and IBM, I don't, know, I don't know what IBM has against it, but IBM did not support that much mm. at all. Interesting. So after data warehousing, then in PRISM, and consulting, you got into text. Yeah. What was that revelation like? Well, one day I was sitting around bored, and I, and I, I got <laughs> to thinking, I think, look at the corporation, because I'd been to and talked with a lot of corporations. One day I said to myself, uh, look at the data in the corporation. Structured data is great. We need it. It's wonderful we it's wonderful we need it but it does not represent the majority of the data in the corporation there is email 
There are reports. There is the internet. There, there, there's a wealth of textual information that is not getting into uh, the form uh, of that can be managed by a computer. And I, and, 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 and I ask myself the question, why is that? Why is text so difficult and different from regular data? That's where that came from. And then that set you on a path. <laughs> that set me on a path. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you described it where you, you, you went into text probably not knowing much of anything about stuff like taxonomies, ontologies. <laughs> when I first went into text, having come coming from a classical structured data modeling world and whatever, I was like a fish flopping on the bank that I said, where's my water? Where's my, uh, I, I felt very, very awkward and lost because the rules of managing text and doing text are completely different than the rules for structured data. And then you started working on textual ETL. I mean, walk me through how you arrived at textual ETL. It's, um, it's not the most obvious thing in the world. It's not obvious. And, and, and it is, it is um, um, uh, the way we did it, we first took a look at NLP. And then we found out that NLP was not a commercial product. It was designed for studying language, not, not producing commercial results. So we quickly rejected NLP as a way to go. And everything after that, everything has been trial and error. And that's why it's taken so long, is because any, boy, errors, oh, did we make errors? Oh, yes, we, but, 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 but we at least learned from our errors, but uh, 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 textual ETL was born of, of, of trial and error. Interesting. So where do you think this all goes? I mean, we, we talked about the history. I mean, what, if you were to put on your uh, uh, prophecy uh, hat? Well, what do you think, I'm do you think happens? I'm a believer that the business value that's wrapped up in textual data will win the day. Now, huh, let me talk a little bit about the difficulties of textual data. Uh, the first difficulty of textual data is that you're not really dealing with textual data. You're also dealing with context. Textual data means nothing unless you have context. And, 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 and that's the first problem. The second problem is, is that uh, uh, there's a lot of confusion and complexities wrapped up in text itself. Just one, 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 let me give you one example. And this is one example of many, many that are out there. One day, I was at um, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and talking with them about what they're doing, and the doctor started talking about the HA problem. Well, I'm not a doctor, but the HA problem, what, what in the world is the HA problem? And they said, oh, the HA problem. He says, when you're reading doctor's notes, doctors use acronyms all the time. And 
If you're reading the doctor's notes from a cardiologist, HA refers to heart attack. If you're reading the uh, notes from a general practitioner, HA refers to headache. If you're reading the notes from an endocrinologist, HA refers to hepatitis A. And so when you're reading doctor's notes and you run across the acronym HA, you've got to know uh, the background of the doctor that wrote it before you can make the right interpretation of the text. Because if you don't make the right interpretation, you may mistake uh, a, a heart attack for a headache. And that, that yeah. is not anything anybody wants to do. So uh, uh, in addition to everything else, in addition to context, the complexity of text uh, let me give you another example. The word fire. What does the word fire mean? Well, the word fire can mean that my house is on fire. It's burning down. That's, that's one definition of fire. Another definition of fire is I walk into my office and my boss says, you're fired. Well, that's something completely different. Or I can take a gun and pull the trigger and I've now fired the gun. So you, you if you ask somebody, what does fire mean? I don't know what it means. You have to give me context before I can tell you what fire means. And the language is full of those uh, uh, idiosyncrasies and complexities. That, that's, that's one reason why text is, uh, is difficult. Mm -hmm. What do you think happens with sort of this is being uh, recorded in uh, uh, basically October of 2023 but uh, you know ChatGPT large language models allow you to mass produce text instantaneously it seems what do you think happens to i guess the universe of text and the viability of using text if it's if what you're looking for is the ability to produce text ChatGPT is amazing but but, but in order for ChatGPT to do its job properly, it has to have context. It has to also understand context. And, 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 and let me give you an example. Uh, uh, suppose I put on an Excel spreadsheet that Bill Inman makes a million dollars a month, and I put that into my computer. ChatGPT sees it and says, oh, Billman makes a million dollars a month, and to, 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 to chat GPT, that's reality. But that's not reality. Bill Inman does not make a million dollars a month. And, and, and uh, 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 so chat GPT addresses the production of code, uh, of text, but it doesn't address the believability of what it's saying. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, I think, with uh, the mass proliferation of text. At lunch, we were talking about how Amazon.com basically uh, uh, will now allow authors only three books per day that they can publish oh on their platform. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's definitely going to be the Wild West for text. Uh, and I think it's, it's going to make it all the more important to have believable text, as you're saying, because I, I think, what is it, they're estimating 95% of all the uh, text um, and the content on the internet is going to be AI generated, uh, yeah. at which point it's just a gigantic garbage pit. But, uh, so. but as far as I can tell, ChatGPT doesn't have any way to address believability. No, it doesn't at all. I, I think, you know, our, our friend uh, Juan Cicada, he's doing some work with knowledge graphs, so maybe that helps. Maybe, 
um, you have to give it some sort of structure and context uh, yep. for it to work. Otherwise, it just blindly. I mean, I have the shirt that says "I hallucinate more than ChatGPT." That's kind of a joke, and uh, <laughs> but it's not too far off. It's just uh, it's a bit messy, but but yeah, I, I think it's it, for what stuff like what you're doing, for example, I think is actually going to be more and more important, uh, precisely because you're going to have to have some sort of structure around, yep. uh, you know, textual data sets. So yep. time will tell, but. Like, uh, your wife just got home. That <laughs> so was might be uh, time to close out the, the podcast then. Um, well, Bill, it's a pleasure talking to you as always. I learned a lot. Hopefully, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, yeah, for people who want to learn more about uh, you and uh, Prism, uh, or sorry, uh, Forest Rims. So, yep. Yeah. How can they do that? Oh, how can you learn more about uh, uh, Forest, Forest Rims? Yeah. Well, uh, we have a website. Uh, we have conversations. We have uh, videos that we do. Uh, we, we have a whole lot of ways, and we're more than happy to talk with people. Awesome. It sounds like things are taking off for you, too, so that's awesome oh, to hear. Thank you, dear Lord. <laughs> awesome. Well, Bill, it's always great talking to you. So. Okay. Because it's our sign. So thanks. <laughs>